And now, if you would, would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. We're on to the next minor prophet, and as we go through the minor prophets, hopefully you're understanding uh, that this is more than just the story of the rise and fall of Israel uh, with particular insights from different writers. Uh, In one sense, this is kind of the revelation of God's character, a demonstration of who He is through the lives of His people. As God interacts with Israel, we get His uh, holiness, His sovereignty, His justice, and His mercy put on display in their lives. We're reminded uh, that whether He moves in blessing or whether He moves in uh, judgment toward their sins, that God always is demonstrating this perfect faithfulness to His people. And on a larger scale, as we step back, we're reminded over and over that God is not simply the God of Israel that Yahweh is not a tribal God, He is not a local God, He is not the God for a people at a place and a time, that He is the God of the universe. He is the sovereign creator and the sustainer, the one who, who rises and falls nations with His power. And so this is not the story of Israel's God, although that is certainly the story of the God of Israel. It is the story and the revelation of the God of the nations. It's everything that he will do in human history as he acts at various points. And even all of this moves forward to a final time in human history. That idea of the day of the Lord and how that's been developed. And it's just this continual reminder of the greatness of God and who he is. And today we're going to come to a new minor prophet, the book of Haggai. And as we turn the page in our Bible, uh, lots has changed. We're dealing with almost an entirely different people. We're dealing with a different time, but we're dealing with the same God. And that God calls us, and he calls Haggai's audience to a very particular point, and that is this, consider your ways. As we go through this book, there's that underlying call through every passage to consider your ways, to take heart consideration of the road that you're on, because the road that you're on has eternal implications attached to it. So if you're not there already, find your way to the book of Haggai, and I'm going to read a little bit out of the first chapter to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Haggai chapter 1, this is what God's Word says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's pray. Lord, that call to consider our ways goes out even to us today. We recognize that Israel at this particular place and at this particular time had much to consider. They had to evaluate what they were doing and why they were doing it. But Lord, uh, we are called to the same question, to set our heart on the ways that we are walking, to try and to see whether our actions, our affections, our attitudes are demonstrating the right priorities. And Lord, we confess that we're a people uh, that are quick to have the wrong priorities. So we ask today, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see and behold marvelous truths from your word. Our hearts, our our sinful flesh is locked and trapped in darkness. We don't bring our own intellect and our own understanding to this, Lord. We are dependent on you and your wisdom. So open our eyes. And Lord, as we see truly who you are and what you've called your people to be and to do, I pray that you would strengthen us through the power of your Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 
to be a people who are not only aware of who you are and what you've done, but who respond in worship and obedience. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I've struggled with priorities my whole life. When I was young, we grew up in a very busy house, and I loved it. There was always something that we were doing, uh, whether it was sports or Awana or some school function or something else at church, because it seemed like we were there every time the doors were open. Our lives always had the next thing that was going on, uh, and again, I loved it. There was even school thrown in there sometimes, and more often than not, what would happen is I'd come to the end of a quarter or the end of a semester at school, and I would be missing an assignment or 10, and it would drive my parents absolutely nuts. And I would have every valid excuse in the book. I was so busy. I had this game to get to. I had this project uh, for Awana that had to be worked on. Uh, I had this, uh, this job that I was working on on the outside. And I had every reason. But the reality, of course, was that I just didn't feel like doing schoolwork. That at the time and the place where it came to sit down and actually do the work, anything and everything seemed more interesting. The game was far more important. Uh, Awana games were far more entertaining. Picking on my brothers sounded far more interesting. Staring blankly out the window sounded far more captivating than whatever math had for me that particular day. So I would put things off, and I'd put them off, and I'd put them off, and I would wait so long that I would either do the project with very much last-minute work, or sometimes I just would wind up not doing the work at all. It was a lot of procrastination. But at the heart of procrastination wasn't not having the time, it was not having the right priorities. At the heart of that procrastination was not being able to tell what the most important things were and devoting the proper time and priority to those most important things. And I would love to tell you that my priorities just kind of naturally fall into place now. That wouldn't exactly be true. Uh, Time has helped. Age has helped. Maturity has helped. uh, Moving through enough crises has helped uh, to kind of order those things. But it's still a fight to think rightly. And I think that's a constant battle for many of us, to put the right things in the right place at the right time. And Haggai asks us to consider our ways to think rightly about the way that we're living. And in particular, as we open up chapter 1 this morning, what we're going to see is the call to right priorities because the people that Haggai is writing to are a people with disordered, mixed-up, backwards priorities. And I'm going to warn you up front. This is a difficult sermon to preach because it hits very close to home. And whenever there's a difficult sermon to preach, my assumption is that it's going to be a difficult sermon for some, maybe all of you, to hear. I don't intend to be harsh. I don't intend to be demeaning. I am not thinking of any particular person other than myself when I say anything from today. But today might be one of those places where God's Word steps on our toes in a more direct way than we anticipated when we rolled out of bed this morning. So, we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to look at the prophet first. We're going to look at the prophet and his background, his time, his place, the context for what he writes. And then we're going to open up chapter 1 together, and we're going to look at the problem that faced the people that Haggai was writing to that he highlights in the first chapter there. And as we open this up, the first question that we always ask is, who wrote it? The who. Who wrote the book, and who was it written to? And verse 1 gives us a lot of information with that. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Lots of good baby name ideas in there, and there's a lot of background information that we'll get to in a minute. 
But there are three primary people that I want us to understand as far as we answer the who question. And the first one is the prophet by whom the Lord speaks. He's a man named Haggai. We don't know much about him. We don't know his father's name, his family name. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know what city he dwells in, other than he certainly interacts in and around Jerusalem. Uh, We don't know how old he is, although there might be some indication from chapter 2 that he's an older man who uh, had seen much in Israel's history, but we're not certain about that. We know that his name means feast or festival, but that's about all the information we have with Haggai as a person. The second person that's important for us to know is a man named Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel. And Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. And again, we're going to talk about timing in just a minute because timing is critical in this book. But Zerubbabel is the governor, and you have to understand that by this time, there is no king in Israel. This is after Babylon has come in and wiped out Jerusalem. It is after the exile of the people, and Jerusalem will never again have a Davidic king sitting independently on the throne over his people from Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel is the local authority who sits under the ultimate authority of a man named Darius, who is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. And the third critical person to understand is a man named Joshua. Haggai says he's the high priest, and the high priest is a direct descendant of Aaron, the very first high priest, from all the way back in Exodus as the tabernacle is built and the worship of the people is instituted. Uh, You might remember the high priest is an absolutely essential function in the worship life of the people of Israel. Uh, The high priest is the only man and only one day a year who can go into the Holy of Holies, into the inner part of the temple, and be in the very presence of God on that day of atonement. And so he's going to play a critical role. And of course, the message is for all the people in and around Jerusalem, and uh, the reason will become evident. But there's three kind of highlighted characters that we see right from that very first verse. Now, the next question that we ask is when this was written. Remember, for some of the minor prophets, we take a look and we have to kind of sift through the book, and we can give a this was probably, maybe, likely around the time that they wrote. And we get kind of a vague generalization or understanding. Sometimes, as we've gone through the minor prophets, uh, they'll attach their writing to a particular king. And so we can date their ministry between kind of this date and this date based on that particular king. Well, when it comes to Haggai, uh, he throws all of that out the window, and he tells us the exact day that this prophecy came. In reading this, we know without a doubt that he wrote in late August of the year 520 B.C., And you say, who cares? I'm going to move on to this a little bit further in detail, not because I'm assuming that each one of you is as enraptured with history as I am, but because the history and where we are is critical to understanding why the prophet writes what he writes. So this is a very familiar slide to you by this point, hopefully. In this, you can see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You remember that after Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom called Israel with Syria, I'm sorry, (laughs) with uh, Jerusalem, Samaria as its capital, Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. In 721 BC, we know that Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom. Wicked, idolatrous people judged by a wicked and idolatrous people. And I've said before that in 586 BC, Babylon comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's true. That is the large end of those two kingdoms. But I want to move into a little bit further detail, and you'll see that on the next slide, and you'll also see that on the handout that you have in your bulletin if you can't read that font. 
Although, let's be honest, if you can't read that font up there, it's likely not going to be much better on your handout and your bulletins. I know that. That's okay. Magnifying glass when you get home. 586 wasn't the beginning of the end of Jerusalem. It was the end of the end of Jerusalem. Because in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem for the first time. And in 605 BC, he actually kind of deposes the king. He takes some people captive. Daniel is likely a part of that very first captivity. He takes a number of things from the temple of the Lord, and then he leaves. So from that time on, Israel essentially functions as kind of a vassal state of Babylon, but they still have their independence. Sometime later in 597 BC, Babylon comes against Jerusalem once again. And as Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem again, he removes more people, people like Ezekiel in that second deportation. He takes more from the temple. He takes wealthy and important people. He leaves the poorest people in the land. Ten years later, in 587 BC, the king that he has left in Jerusalem rebels. And Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come against Jerusalem a final time because they've had enough. And for about a year and a half, they lay siege to Jerusalem, and conditions inside the city become almost unthinkable in their inhumanity. And in 586 BC, the walls are breached, the army falls, the last king is done away with, and Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are reduced to rubble, the temple is burned to ash, every great house, every significant building in the city is raised with fire. And everyone worth having is either killed or taken away. And Jerusalem essentially, as you can see on there, lies desolate for 50 years. During that 50 years, something significant happens. There is an empire change. The Babylonian Empire falls and the new Persian kingdom rises up. The Medo-Persian Empire takes the place of Babylon as the most significant kingdom in the ancient Near East. And a man named Cyrus... In 538 B.C., he makes a decree, and he says that the people in his empire are allowed to go home, that every captive from every people is allowed to go back to their homeland, and Cyrus says something very specific to the Jewish people. By the way, 200 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah says not only what he's going to do, but what his name is going to be. And you can go to museums, particularly when I saw it, it was at the British Museum in London, and you can see the cylinder that rolls out the proclamation of Cyrus as he does this. Prophecy and then history verified. That's another thing. But in Ezra 1, it actually records the words that Cyrus says. Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Cyrus actually gives the people back the things that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple. He says, go back home. Here's your stuff. Here's money for the journey. Here's letters to protect you on your travels. And you do this with the specific intent, not only of rebuilding your nation, but with rebuilding your temple in mind. And about 50,000 people go back. Remember, for the better part of 70 years... The bulk of Israel has been in captivity. They've built homes. They've had families. They've started essentially a new life in the middle of another country. And now 50,000 of them go back. 
And in 536 BC, they start to work on the temple. They build an altar and they begin to offer the sacrifices again. They lay the foundation of the temple in preparation to rebuild the building. And then the work stops for any number of reasons, some that we'll talk about in a bit. There was definitely serious opposition from the people around them. There are political threats. There's kind of political intrigue and letters that go back and forth to the king of the empire that, that halt and falter in the work. But what you understand is that by the time we come to Haggai chapter 1, we're in late August of the year 520 B.C. We are dealing with a people who have been brought back to an absolutely devastated land. They are in a ruined Jerusalem. And for the last 15 years, there's been a foundation, an altar, and nothing else in the house of God. And that brings us to the why. Because the central message of this book uh, is a drastic turn from any of the other minor prophets. There's no call for the people to put off their idols. One of the fascinating things about Israel through their history is that that captivity in Babylon essentially cured them of their external idolatry. It did not fix their hearts. It did not make them right worshipers. They were still internally disobedient. They still worshiped incorrectly. But it did stop them from pursuing the gods of all the nations around them. Uh, At the heart of Haggai is not a call to be more just, to be more fair. It's not a call to put off oppression of the weak. At the heart of Haggai is the call to rebuild the temple. It's a very specific command. Rebuild the house that they have ignored. And God calls his people to consider their ways. He, He says the fact that the temple is not rebuilt is not just a physical issue, it's a heart issue. He says, evaluate your actions, test and see whether you're actually living this life of obedience to God. It's a challenge. This whole book is a challenge, and then the people's response, and then God's response to their response. So that context is going to help us kind of understand why the prophet writes what he does in chapter 1. And as we open up chapter 1, as far as the bulk of it, it gives us what that main problem was, which is, of course, externally the rebuilding of the temple. But once again, when you see the temple and the state of the temple, the, what the people had done regarding the temple is just the outward reflection of their inward priorities. It's the physical demonstration of where their spiritual lives are at. So let's look at the problem for the people of Israel, and it's not going to take long to see how that problem really filters down to us as well. And after that verse 1, all that introductory information, we see that the Lord challenges his people, and that centers around a question. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came to by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Remember, for 15 years, the temple stays there. It's unfinished. There's an altar. There's a foundation. There's nothing else. And what the people have done is the people have excused that. What is it? The people say that it is not the right time to rebuild. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And again, there are several things that might be behind that. It is possible that they were looking at God's timeline and that they said it wasn't time yet. They might actually mean that it's not the right time. God said, you are going into captivity for 70 years. 
And maybe they're looking at it and they say, well, it hasn't been 70 years since the temple was burned. Maybe it's not time to rebuild it yet. That excuse is flimsy at best since Cyrus had decreed that absolutely that was what they were going back to do. And since it had been well over 70 years since the first deportation of people, uh, maybe they couldn't afford it. These are poor people coming back to a ravaged land. But that starts to fall apart because Cyrus had given them money and the means to do it. They'd taken up a significant offering from the people. They had at least come off to a good start. They had purchased beams and timbers from the people in the north, and it would have seemed like it was ready to go. Or maybe it was just that constant threat from their neighbors. Uh, As the people come back into the land, uh, there are those who have settled in that area during the time of the deportation, particularly in the area of Samaritan of the Samaria. Uh, You hear Jesus talk about the Samaritans and that constant struggle. The roots of that go all the way back to here. There are a people that have settled in this area who have no interest in seeing Jerusalem and Judah become strong again. And so they threaten physical violence. They appeal back to the emperor, back to the king to put a stop to this work. There's this constant struggle, even threats of violence against the people. But whatever the reason, the people had an excuse. The reality is they knew what to do. If you were to ask them, they would have said, yes, we should rebuild the temple. They would have said, yes, we plan on doing it. They would have said, yes, we are willing to do it. It's just not the right time. And God asks a pointed question. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Not the right time, huh? So is it the right time to build your house, but not mine? Is it the right time to work on your priorities and not mine? See, their houses weren't in ruins. They were living in paneled houses, and paneled houses is a tricky thing depending on how you translate it. Uh, No matter what the specific intent, it deals with something other than just the basic structure of a house. They were living in houses that were finished, houses that had something extra on the outside, either for protection, for insulation, or even just for beauty. The problem is, they had taken time to put the finishing touches on their things, and so the Lord directly challenges their priorities. He's saying, why are you putting your desires, your priorities ahead of obedience? And he challenges them, and he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. The literal way to say it, it says, put your heart on your roads. Set your heart to the road that you are on. Carefully consider the path that you are moving down. Where is that course leading you? Well, where had that road led them? Look at verse 6. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He says, what have these priorities gotten you? You plant, and you plant, and you plant, and the crop never seems to be enough. You eat, and you drink, but you never seem to feel full. You layer up your clothes, but you never seem to feel warm. You work, and you work, and you work, and it seems like the bills always outstrip the income. 
He says, the road that you're on seems to be maximum effort for absolute bare minimum results. And I am not sure that there is a more pointed or practical message for the church at large to hear. Why is it that we think that we can pursue our own priorities, our own path, our own way, and hope to find peace and satisfaction and genuine fulfillment? Look, if it were just the culture around us, it would be one thing. But this infects the church, not just this church, but this church and the church to such a large degree that I think we would have to be willfully blind not to see it. There has never been a more prosperous people in the history of the world. There's never been a people with better access to things like healthcare and information in the history of the world. There's not been a time where there was more published theological truth through books and magazines and online articles and podcasts. And what do we see? A church full of people who work long hours for paychecks that are never enough. Churches filled with people who plan and schedule and are more anxious than they have ever been. Biblical illiteracy, not just in the culture, but within the walls of the church. Social media posts that are characterized by worry, complaining, bitterness, anger, to the degree that sometimes the world can barely catch up. But you know what? We've got bigger church buildings than ever before. We've got better technology than ever before. More polished worship sets, fancier slides, better videos, bigger BBS programs, more intricate youth events than ever before. And here's the reality that we have for it. A culture, a state, and a city that is increasingly identified by its separation from God. Fewer and fewer people identified as regular church attenders, let alone identifying themselves as born-again believers. A growing unwillingness, polled, statistically shown, a growing unwillingness within the church itself to have gospel conversations with people. And so just like those people in Israel, it's a fair question. What are we waiting for? What road are our hearts actually on? And God gives them an answer. He knows their priorities are off. And so God gives a command that corrects them, that moves them back toward obedience. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's that phrase again, second time already in this wonderful little book. It'll come up three more times in this wonderful little book. Set your heart to the path that you're on. Consider carefully what you are doing. Then he says, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God does not give them a 12-step program to get out of their trouble. God does not say, 
I understand why you've delayed so long. Money's tight and people are mean. Let me wipe out Samaria and move the heart of Darius to give you an additional fund to build the thing. You know what he says? Get up and get moving. Get up and do the thing that I told you to do that you know you're supposed to do. Go to the hills and start chopping. And do it for my pleasure and for my glory. See, we forget that what he had told them to do, to build that house, it was a place for the pleasure and the glory of God. That temple was supposed to be a demonstration of the glory of the God of Israel. It was supposed to be the place, the unique place in all of the earth where the presence of God dwelt among his people. It was supposed to be a beacon light to the nations. It was supposed to demonstrate the fame and the name of Yahweh. And every day that that house stands unbuilt, the glory of God is not diminished or done away with, but it is muted among his people. And it's not just a place for his glory. It's the place where he was supposed to take pleasure in what was happening. The temple was for the delight of the Lord and for the good of his people. Think about what happened at the temple. This is the place where the people were to bring their worship their joyful songs as they gathered together. This was supposed to be the place where they brought their sacrifices, the place where as that blood was shed, it was the constant reminder that a holy God lived among a sinful people but made fellowship possible. He said, that animal, that bull, that lamb, that goat, it stands in your place. And even though you are wretched and wicked and sinful, I will allow that to cover you for a time. Even as is anticipated a greater more lasting sacrifice to come later. See, it was kind and gracious of God to demand that they do that because His glory was ultimately for their good. And so as He calls them to obedience, He's actually inviting them back into fellowship and blessing with Him. Look what he says in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. You looked for much, you carry this precious thing home, and by the time you get home, your hands are empty. And he says, why? Why are you living like this? Why are you killing yourself for nothing? Here's what's happening, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on the, what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Their disobedience, their disordered priorities have a consequence, and by this time, I really hope that those things sound familiar to you. It doesn't start here. You go all the way back to Leviticus 26, and God says, as I move you into the land, if you are obedient, you will know blessing and plenty and prosperity, and if you're disobedient, you'll know discipline. And that was true on the day they crossed the Jordan. It was true under the judges. It was true under the kings. It was true in the divided kingdom. It was true in the exile, and it's true now because God doesn't change. He blesses his people as they are obedient. And as the people are disobedient, God graciously disciplines them not to destroy them, but in order to call them back. And again, guys, I think we need to hear that because the reality is we tend to make this harder than it is. We say my situation is really hard. 
My situation is really complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, My situation is unique. And all those things are true to an extent. But I have no doubt that your situation, whatever you're working with, my situation, it's difficult. And it's complicated, oftentimes. And all of our struggles are unique and different in their own way. But obedience isn't complicated. It might be hard, but obedience is rarely complicated. Again, this might not be easy to hear, but this is something that I see so often in conversations online, in counseling, and honestly, in my own life. I am not different or unique in any of this. But disobedience does not come from ignorance. If we're honest, if we were just absolutely honest, you and I are not disobedient, or we are very, very rarely disobedient because we have no idea what the right thing to do is. Far more often than not, we either know exactly what we ought to be doing, or we at least know the steps that we should take to move in the direction of obedience. The problem is that I'm usually simply not willing. Because it sounds hard, because it sounds uncomfortable. I would rather claim ignorance than simply admit disobedience. And look, that doesn't mean that obedience is easy. That's not what I'm saying at all. Disobedience is natural. Obedience takes a tremendous amount of faith. It takes a tremendous amount of faith to obey, especially when obedience will bring more difficulty, which sometimes it does. But obedience is not a response to comfort. Obedience itself is an act of faith. Because obedience says that the God who brought me to this place and who set me on this road will give me what I need to faithfully complete the journey. And there's a beautiful comfort here, not just for Haggai and the people, but for us. Because that really difficult question that probing of the people's priorities, it comes with a promise. Look what happens in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. The people from top to bottom from governor to commoner, from high priest to Joe Judah, they obey. And they don't make excuses. They don't justify the fact that the temple is not done. They don't rationalize the fact that the temple isn't done. They don't excuse their failure. They just acknowledge their failure. Why? It says because they feared the Lord. You want to know what stops our obedience? Amnesia. We forget the Lord. We forget exactly who it is that we're serving. See, whatever the reason was, whatever the specific reason was for their disobedience, it only matters if God is not who he says he is. 
if they didn't rebuild the temple because they didn't have the money. That's only a problem if God is not the one who provides for their needs. If they didn't rebuild the temple because they were afraid of their angry, violent neighbors, that is only a problem if God can't protect them and enable them to finish the work that he called them to. And on and on down the list. And again, the reality is that we have the same solution available. Obedience does not come because it's convenient. It doesn't come when it makes sense or because the time is right. Obedience comes when we fear the Lord. Obedience comes when the circumstance, the difficulty, the opposition, the pain, the fear, whatever the thing, the excuse might be, obedience only comes when that pales in the face of a holy, awesome, fearsome, kind, loving God. We obey when we fear the Lord And look what God promises. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. For the people of God, there are no more powerful or comforting words. Because if God is with them, failed crops are not the end of the story. If God is with them, drought isn't the end. If God is with them, lack of money isn't the end. If God is with them, then whether it's the... Samaritans gathered there, uh, whether it's the Egyptians that come up in hostility, uh, whether it is the full might of the Persian army, if God is with them, then none of that is actually a threat. See, for God's people, God's presence is the most precious promise. And I think it's so interesting what he doesn't promise. He does not say, I will deal with those who hate you. He does not say, I will miraculously provide the means. He does not say, I will give you a crop that will enable you to work and not worry about food all of this coming winter. He simply says, I will be with you, and that will be enough. And in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. About three weeks after that initial message, the work starts again. The people respond with humility. God responds with the promise of his presence, and then God stirs the hearts and the spirits of his people toward obedience to accomplish the work. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think God is still faithful to do that. That where his people respond humbly to correction and conviction, that God still promises his presence. Didn't Christ say the same thing? I will never leave you or forsake you. Go and preach the gospel to all the nations, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I would also say that where there is humility and obedience, God's going to stir the lives of his people with the passion, the energy, the desire, and the wisdom to obey the call that he's placed on their hearts. I love this book. And I hate it. It hurts. 
convicting, and maybe I don't love that part so much, but I love the reminder that it gives. There's this clarity where God calls His people to respond to the challenge that He has given. Consider your ways. Set your heart to the road that you are on and see where it leads. And I love that because I forget. Look, my life is busy enough to where more often than not, my tendency is to put it on cruise control. Put the schedule in the phone and just do the next beep on the reminder that comes up. And days bleed into weeks, into months, and into years, and we just kind of drift through life without ever really setting our heart to the road that we're on. I love this book because it calls us back to what's important. I love this book because of this detail. Here's when the message was given, and here's when the people did something about it. It's like this permanent landmark etched in the history of God's people when they moved in obedience. And maybe today can be that day for us. Maybe some of us sitting here, watching here, listening here, maybe as the years move on, we look back to October 15th, 2023. We say that was the day God stomped on my heart. And I responded with humility and conviction and moved forward in obedience. And we know that obedience moves toward blessing. So what do we need to do about this? Three very challenging things to think through today. First of all, what house are you building? That is a question that I would urge you to consider, but that only you can answer. What are your priorities and where do you find them? Are you actively engaged in building God's house or yours? If someone were to have complete, unfiltered access to your calendar, where do you spend your time? If someone were to have complete, unfiltered access to your finances, where do you spend your money? If someone were to have complete, unfiltered access to the thoughts of your mind and the intentions of your heart, what is it that you meditate on? Do you define your priorities by what you say is important on a Sunday morning, or do you understand that you actually live out your priorities every other day of the week? Are we willing to say that we don't know what we're supposed to do? Are we willing to be honest and say that often we're simply not willing? Second, if not now, when? This question is not any easier. What are we waiting for? And we've all got the answer. We're waiting for the right time. Look, we know that we're supposed to give sacrificially, and we will. As soon as I have a full-time job. As soon as I have benefits. As soon as the 401k is fully funded. As soon as the kid's college fund is fully funded. As soon as the car is paid off. As soon as the house is paid off. We will. We know that we're supposed to serve. We know that we're supposed to use the gifts and talents that God has entrusted to us, and we will. As soon as work settles down, as soon as I'm out of high school, as soon as I'm married and I have a partner to do it with, as soon as the kids are out of the house, as soon as the right ministry opportunity comes along, as soon as a person that I want to work with comes into my life, as soon as someone recognizes my gifting, 
soon as I have the energy, or at least I would have back when I was young and had the energy, we will. We know that we're supposed to tell people about Jesus, and we will, as soon as we learn a little bit more, as soon as we pick up a little more confidence, as soon as we know the neighbor a little bit better, or as soon as they know us a little bit better, as soon as my job's not on the line, as soon as they deserve it, as soon as they ask me to give them the gospel. we just come to the place where we're honest enough to say that it's never the perfect time and it's never been about timing it's never been about comfort it's always been about who and what we worship and here's the final question but what if or let me phrase it in a way that is far more offensive what's your excuse because we can always come up with another what if. What if I give to the church and then the economy collapses? What if I talk about Jesus and I lose my job or I lose that relationship? What if I serve and it winds up being a terrible fit and it's really difficult and no one actually thanks me for it? What if it means that I do what God has called me to do and I run out of time to do all the things that really make me feel pretty good about myself? What if I put myself in that position to serve and it makes me feel awkward and uncomfortable and outside of my comfort zone? What if I choose not to be angry or anxious or hopeless? What if I do move forward in obedience? And what happens when life is still difficult tomorrow? What if, and listen, all those things that I just read, you should know those took me about 20 seconds to write. Because guess whose excuses those are? Those are mine. Well, what's the promise? Because you're right. Promise isn't more money. The promise isn't put yourself out on a limb and people will love you for it. The promise isn't give to God and he'll repay you double for what you've sown. What's the promise? I am what? With you. Here's the cold, hard reality. If that's not enough, nothing will be. The reality is some of us work 60 hours a week, and there never seems to be enough. Some of us try and try and try to get a hold on our lives and make it all manageable, and we still cannot deal with the burning anxiety. Some of us pray and pray and pray, and it seems like God is still a million miles off. Some of us do and do and do, and there's still that pit, that poisonous pit in the middle of our stomach that says, this is not what it ought to be. And maybe, just maybe, that is because we have made the idol of comfort or convenience or money or anything else and put it in the place that God alone ought to have in the center of our hearts. we got to consider our road, people. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to have displaced priorities, not because we intend to walk far from you, but because our flesh drifts. It's just what we do. We're sinful, fallen people, and we drift.
What a great comfort it is to know that you call us back, that you forgive us, that you restore us, and that you, of all things, promise to be with us. God, be with us. God, set your holy, wonderful, merciful, beautiful, fearful face before us so that we gaze upon you in wonder and move forward in awestruck obedience and worship. Lord, we are dependent on you to make that change, but may today be the day. Amen.